Are we at the beginning or are we at somewhere else? Yeah, we are. And we've got Tim Meyer with us today. Well, you get, you're just going to jump right into yeah, that, just, Well, we don't have any time because you've you got to cut this short. <laughs> Usually he's the one accusing me of jumping in too early on something. I see. So I thought, I thought turnabout was fair play there. It did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah, we're on a short fuse today, so uh, let's introduce Tim, let's lay out the topics, and then let's just end the show. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Or, or You're cutting could, right to the heart of the matter. We could do it like the, uh, the last time Tim was on the show, which, by the way, I'm going to include a link to the last episode, in the because I thought it was great, and we'll get to why I thought it was great, maybe. Um, if we have time. If we have time. Before Joe has to leave. Before Joe has to leave. Joe, yeah. are, you, are you good now? Do you need to leave right now? I think right it's now? been a great episode. <laughs> Tim, it's so good to see you. Um, We've really enjoyed this. Uh, uh, so, uh, but the last time that Tim was on, we had what I characterized in the show notes as, and I didn't know what this meant because I didn't remember this, a dramatic technical difficulty. Do you mm. remember this? Do you remember this, Joe? I have no recollection of it at all. It is our only, I would say, and it wasn't even catastrophic, but it seemed like it could be at the time, only catastrophic technical difficulty. We've never like recorded a whole show, lost it, had to go back, you know, that would or be Or even like, really significant chunks we've no. not lost. A few times. Because yeah. you are in a, a stellar technical. Although my memory is that we no. did lose that entire episode and then re-recorded the whole thing. That, that, and that memory is incorrect. Oh, really? So, so as it turns you out, only we wished. recorded for about yeah. 45 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, my, the, the, the older Mac that I was using at the time had a kernel panic, which is not something that, you know modern Macs usually do or modern mm. machines usually do. But it's like a full, like I guess it would be equivalent of like a blue screen on Windows. It's like a full, like, you know, like the old bomb days. Remember the old bomb days? Mm. Yeah. And as I was going through it, well, we don't have anymore. I thought we'd lost the 45 minutes. And like, it, I think you had to go, someone had to go at that time. So we just had to like, let's try again. And it was like, a, we admitted defeat, disbanded, and, and mm-hmm. thought we would try again. Um, but when we came back the next week, I had recovered it. I had found the file because oh. you know it's constantly writing yeah, that should not happen you should never lose stuff because it's constantly writing the file unless you mm. lose your disc and so the way the episode went we had 45 minutes of excellent conversation about brexit nice um, or i should say tim was excellent and we said some stuff hey we, we made mouth noises and 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 then we continued it with like a little there was like a little audio little stinger that i put in you know how i like the sound effects joe sure sure you know, i put them in the show all the time <laughs> and and then we continued the conversation, which was also good. Now, one other interesting thing about this was our, our first 45 minutes was powered by coffee, like this morning. Right. When we decided to do it again, like, I felt like even though like Tim's a good friend, I know Tim, like I felt a little sheepish about saying, can you come back and record the whole thing again? Because at that time, it seemed like we were just going to have to do the whole thing again. Right. And that this, seemed, that seemed like an imposition on your time. Yeah, yeah, I know you remember that. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no. The part, the part where we didn't use coffee. The we had adult beverages. <laughs> we did have adult beverages, <laughs> which may explain why I don't remember the mm, actual resolution. It does change the vibe, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. Um, yeah. And I think this was, I, I'd have to look back at the date, but from listening to it, it sounds like it was summer 2016. So it was almost immediately post-Brexit, but before the United States election. Mm. And it was and like so I we was, must have sounded very haughty we didn't know who the v and actually no i know exactly when it was because now i remember it uh we were talking uh, about the vice presidential we were talking about who yeah. would be the vice president but in between the lost recording or the, the supposedly lost recording and the resumption the republican national convention occurred oh. which by the way i think that's like been a race from our collective memory and this is not a political show 
Did you know that we we're totally nonpartisan? But boy, that was a freak show. <laughs> that, that, that convention was a total freak show. It was crazy, right? And and so you're hearing us like adjust to like, did we all like? Did, did that just did, happen? happen? Right. Whereas beforehand, we were you know like Flynn was in consideration for a Veep nomination, and I was making a oh, kind of quasi joke about like how it sounds like something out of the Hall of Villains, like President Trump and General Flynn. And General, <laughs> That's President right. Trump and General Flynn. That's yeah. right. I, I do remember that. Yeah. I do remember that. Wow. So so that episode is actually in some ways, uh, you know. Eight months later, became kind of kind of a classic, right? It's almost vintage. Well, I, you know, it's like I don't love any of my children more than any other child. Right. So there, there are a lot of classics in the archive, Tim. Well, that's true. Okay, <laughs> but, fair enough. Uh, no, but this one is like it's a. I, I'm. Gonna, I really think people should go back and listen because it is fascinating listening because we're talking about like what we think is going to happen with Brexit after the vote, but before the triggering of Article Fifty. Right. And we actually put our cards on the table as to what we think is going to happen. Ooh, I don't what, remember what, what going to happen. Um. Let's see. How did you? Uh, what did you say? I think you thought that there would be negotiations in advance of triggering Article Fifty. Mm. We'll, we'll go back as we tend to do on this show. Mm-hmm. Like people are saying, what are they talking about? Like if you don't have expertise in this, or right. you don't follow the news closely, you're like, what is it? What? Or you're right. not from Britain. If you're from Britain, you're like, oh my god, another Brexit show. Please stop now. Right. Please stop talking. Uh, in which case, you can just put, <laughs> you, can, you can push stop on your phone. Totally, that that works, right? Um, but um, uh, so we'll go back in, in typical oral argument fashion. We'll catch everybody up after we've had this conversation. But um, I think your thought was that there would be kind of shadow negotiation, the kinds of negotiations which were envisioned for occurring after the triggering of Article 50. They'd lay the groundwork. That they would kind advance. of start talking in the beginning. They would realize that they needed to make some changes and then they would never actually trigger Article 50 because Ooh. of what these... Oh, when you said they would make right. some changes, you mean the EU would feel Maybe. that they could make some accommodations and, that would prevent yeah. Article 50 from being triggered? Y- yes. This, or, is, this is actually what... I, so there are two but, things... But, but also, but, hold on. But also, I think Tim was imagining that the... The negotiations would come out like here's what Brexit would kind of look like, and it would be so horrifying, right? That the British public and the British yes. government. This is before we realized that democracies really were willing to totally drive off a cliff. Right. It sounds like my prediction about what Brexit would look like was was spot on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we all agreed on that. That that like the, that yeah. Britain had very little leverage. They were like they had were aiming toward the. Cliff. You mean if they triggered it. It would be. It would go badly for them. It would go badly, which it yes. completely has. Right, uh, to the point yeah. where it's actually crowded out pretty much every other bit of public discourse, uh, every bit of discourse about public law issues. Right, it yeah. consu- That's one problem with these crazy things. It's not only that they do all the damage that they do to whatever arrangements people have in their lives, and and you could debate. W- which people are most affected, and some people may, might not be particularly affected at all. But it also just mentally destroys everything else around it so that it becomes the only thing anyone can talk about. Yeah. And that's so, why. So you can't devote the kind of need, like, oh gosh, we've got this, there's this completely unrelated issue that we really need to figure out an answer to. But it turns out everyone is busy over there dealing with this complete cluster bumble that's destroying everything in its path. Um, I think Brexit's been trending on Twitter in the UK repeatedly since, you know, for two years, basically, uh, just continuously. And because it is like it is occupying all of the oxygen. Which isn't something people, ta- I don't remember people talking about that in advance. Yeah. Like yeah. that one consequence of doing this will be that it, that it completely occupies all of our mental energy and leaves us completely unable to cope with any other issue. Really, well, that's what I was most hoping for before the way. US election, actually, right? I mean, one of the things I was most looking forward to, because I, I really didn't think that he would win was like oh my god thank god i don't have to think about this like <laughs> this soap opera anymore right or that right. and 
I uh, so I was teaching. I, I as we were talking about before we started, I, I taught constitutional law one this semester, and we ended the course by teaching um, lawsuits against the president. Mm. Um, and we read Clinton v. Jones, where the Supreme Court decides that um, the uh, case against President Clinton in his private capacity can can proceed. The sexual harassment complaint. Sexual harassment. Harassment. This is the brilliant Justice Stevens opinion, right? The, uh, and so I just I basically just read it to them um, where they talk about how I mean, there's a, there's actually a sentence in there in which uh, the court says that. Um, it's very difficult to imagine any presidency ever being engulfed by uh, <laughs> litigation about the president's <laughs> private conduct, <laughs> which was like proven false at the uh, like nearly immediately after it was decided, and then now like it's right. it's compounded with interest over time, right? right? Yeah, right. Wow. Right. Talk about a case that has not aged well. So one thing. So also in our conversation about Brexit, um, I think Joe, you said that they would trigger it and they and it would happen. Like you, you took, I think, the realistic, pessimistic view from the beginning. If you're like I am, like vaguely, you know, anti-Brexit. And but uh, and, and I predicted that that I don't remember if I said they would trigger it, but that what would end up happening would be a new protocol, a new amendment to the EU treaty so that the British politicians could save face by saying basically they exited the old regime and entered another. And maybe it would be like the. I don't know, the Dublin Which is precisely like the thing that the EU cannot permit is the face-saving gesture that because then everyone else will want to do it. Yeah. And, and they can't allow it. The prediction and I think was that's kinda, been borne out totally. The, yeah, the, the prediction the remaining... was kind of based on the importance of Britain for the Union and the fear about like mass exit. So like right. everybody would come before the table and kind of it would be a, a clearing of all, you know, um, grievances. But like, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. We still don't know what's going to happen. We, we Tim, what's going to happen? Yeah, who knows? Do you, I, I think I still think Brexit will not happen in the end, but really this. Yes, it's months away. I mean, the date that has been triggered is is like three months from now, isn't it? Yeah, but they're staring down the barrel of total chaos and it has not stopped them. It, they are barreling <laughs> toward it. Right. That, that's the, that's the thing. Right. So the the uh, guess I made two years ago, apparently, was that the, <laughs> we should not confront people with their two year old guesses. They would, it's just not yeah, nice. It was that they would structure negotiations in a way that was likely to uh, produce an outcome that wouldn't resolve wouldn't involve Britain um, proceeding with absolutely no leverage towards a terrible deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've now had two years of learning that, that that's not the British negotiating strategy. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm sort of with Joe. I mean, it, it would make sense to to try to back out of this through a second referendum and, a ne- you know, take the position that, that the the initial notification under Article 50 doesn't mean you can't walk it back. But right. it's unclear that the May government has any interest in Well, it's complicated that. by like internal or, British. Or, the, or Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, or, that's right. the well, other weird right. thing. That's what I was going to say. Right. You know, you might have expected labor to There's no pro of... back, pro Brexit. There's no uniformly pro, um, not Brexit, but pro Remain party. Right. I mean, because they each have and we talked about this on the show last time. They each have wings of Remain and Leave. Right. Like, you know, the um, I think the way we talked about it last time was was um, there's kind of the the anti-globalist Trump Bannon angle, but also the Battle of Seattle type lefty like there. And so there's no like clean division which tracks other partisan obligations, which would sort like the, you know, pro leave, pro remain camps. So if the existence conditions were present for them to begin to behave as if they did not want to hurdle off the cliff, uh, if those conditions were present, they would not now be hurtling toward that cliff. Right. That's the problem. So so it you, there's an, therefore there isn't any reason to believe that they will steer away from the cliff. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what to make of opinion poll. I don't know enough about British politics. Our listeners over there surely know a lot more than I know about this. But so, so but Tim, like the, it looks like you know there's a, there's a solid majority in favor of remaining, according to opinion polling that I saw recently. Solid meaning like more than the margin in the original. You know, I think oh, it was fifty two forty eight, and now it's like fifty four percent. Yeah, Romania I think David Cameron saw that polling right before he called the uh, initial <laughs> <laughs> right. initial referendum. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> So from a trade point of view, let's assume that, that there's a, a, a crash out, that parliament, there's no majority in parliament for any deal, so they crash out. Uh, so we're, I guess they're back to the WTO rules, mm-hmm. right? Um, one thing that seems to have been uh, dogging the entire conversation uh, is the question whether there would or, or, or should or could be a hard border in, uh, on the island of Ireland. Right. Uh, if they crash out, a border has to go up, right? So, right. So Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Ireland, the rest of Ireland is part of the EU. The Republic of Ireland. The I Republic guess. of Ireland, yeah. yes, would be part of the or is part of the EU. Um, and so they would no longer be within what we would think of as the same customs union. And so you'd have to have some mechanism for assessing duties as goods moved across that border. So if there's a hard, if there's a hard crash out, it seems to me that very strongly propels Irish unification because the um, the return to a hard border, although there are some, I uh, imagine there are some unionists, they might all fit in a VW bus, but there are some unionists who would be like, fine, hard border, blah. But the re- I would think most people in Ireland would be like, well, I guess we're just going to be one country now, right? Because I guess this, this border it's... is going to lead us back to bombing each other and that's not acceptable. So isn't I, that isn't that a reasonable prediction? I, so I, I uh, am not an expert on modern Irish uh, politics. Nor am I. This well, is, feel right, free in the show. Let's Tim, get someone feel free. Else in here. <laughs> it's a, you just run free. Yeah, but but uh, I mean, my impression, and it's, the coverage of Brexit always focuses on this issue about Ireland. Um, but it seems to me that, uh, especially outside of the UK, there may be more focus on this within the UK. Mm. Um, this is not very well explained to the rest of us because it seems to me that actually. Um, the Ireland issue is driving uh, all of this, right? Which which makes sense when you think it appears about the history. Yeah. Yeah, when you think about the history of Northern Ireland and the British role in, in Ireland generally and in Northern Ireland specifically, um, and all of the work that went into um, establishing peaceful uh, relations there, yeah. the idea that that would be disrupted and that you would return to the question of what is Northern Ireland's status um, as a result of Brexit – has to be, I think, one of the things that is forefront in in the minds of the British uh, leadership, um, and uh, you know I think what you suggest seems like a, a reasonable uh, a reasonable resolution. But on the other hand, you know it becomes unpredictable what happens. I mean, we, we've still got, yeah, right. uh, if I remember correctly, a Catalonian leader who's who's in jail for trying to uh, secede from um, from Spain. I was in uh, Brussels a year ago when it was discovered that he was. Um, I was in Brussels when the media found him living in a something that was the equivalent of like an embassy suites outside of <laughs> of Brussels, where he was where he was hiding out. Right, and there was this sort of European embassy wide... suites. By the way, is not a technical uh, international law <laughs> no. term for like like the di- diplomatic no. pouch. It is yes. a, it is that's a hotel right. chain in the United States. That's right. That's right. There's no yeah. diplomatic immunity. There's no inviolability <laughs> attached to embassy suites. You're like putting, <laughs> right. you there's no Julian Assange in, wing of yeah. the embassy you suites in Brussels. In embassy suites. That's right. He was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Embassy, right? <laughs> there was a lot of confusion about that at the time. Um, 
you know, so so this is a question that these these European governments are constantly wrestling with, right? Because we you know we we think of these European states as being um, they they've been around for a long time, um, but they are multi ethnic in a way that right. yeah. um, really can can test their integrity when these kinds of issues come up. And this sort of pushes the other way the the idea of um, rather than sort of dissolving into smaller and smaller bits each of which has a, sort of a self-determination project of some kind that other people are prepared to recognize, uh, this, this would be pushing against that stream, that, that right. Ireland re, becoming fully unified, stick the DUP leadership in a dinghy and push it toward England and just be done with it. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a pulling together, not a coming apart. Well, it's both, right? I mean, it's, it, it is a... For the I, island of Ireland, it's coming together. We didn't have an agenda today talking to Tim, so I don't know how much we want to make this about. Like, I, there's this China news. There's the uh, there's the U.S. Marine Corps agreement. It's, I think it's actually United States, Mexico, Canada. That's agreement. right. Uh, of course, in, 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 <laughs> apparently can, we're we're going to uh, withdraw from NAFTA, possibly finally. Yeah, well, Canada, you know, calls it puts Canada first, and Mexico puts Mexico yes. first. This is part of the you know your country first, but so that's like part, <laughs> part of this. Like, it, so this story about about so Ireland it's a NIF. is, is it's in a part no first. Like, is in part a, a, a turn toward a world of like putting national interests first, where nations are defined by like traditional ethnic. You know lines, and so uh, let's go. Let's just leapfrog to the well, WTO thing, which is what? I think just before we leapfrog, though, it's just the other, the other issue that the British have to be worried about. Uh, that I should say that London has to be worried about is Scotland, right? Because yeah, sure, because it's the same problem. Because if I, if you let Northern Ireland go to to remain within the EU, then Scotland, which voted to remain, is going to want to leave, and right, um, and you're going to see you know power. You're going to see sort of decomposition at the level of the nation state in favor of. Um, authority going up to the uh, to the EU, um, and so you know if if you're London, um, that doesn't look. Uh, excuse me, I should say if you're the British government, that doesn't look that good. If you were actually the city of London, uh, you would like that deal as well. <laughs> yeah, right. The city of London would like yeah. to secede. I mean, yeah. you know, that's it, right. Or stay in the EU at least. So, is if the WTO is the default uh, for England and Scotland and whatever else is part of the United Kingdom upon a hard Brexit? Um, is so is the WTO itself coming apart at the seams? It's I'm starting to see people say things about like the the G20 summit going on, that uh, the inability to frame a communique uh, is a sign of the WTOs itself starting to unravel. Uh, what do you think of that? Are we returning is, to a Westphalian The WTO system? is certainly under, uh, under a lot of stress. Um, so, and what's putting it under that stress? So what's putting it, there's a couple of things that are putting it under, uh, under stress. So um, back in the, uh, actually really beginning in the uh, second Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, continuing through the o Obama administration um, and sort of picking up steam through the Obama administration and now into the Trump administration, um, the U.S. government has had a concern that the WTO's appellate body, which mm. is basically the Supreme Court of Trade, uh, interprets the WTO agreements in ways that are uh, at odds in some cases with the text of those agreements, that the appellate body is, has been imposing obligations on the United States in particular, but members in general, uh, that are not in those agreements and to which the United States did not uh, did not sign up for when it joined the WTO in, in 1995. Um, the uh, way in which the administration, again, beginning with the Obama administration, has responded to that is by 
uh, trying to use its power over the appointment of appellate body mm. judges to influence um, the way in which they would approach these interpretive questions. I think if you're an American uh, lawyer, this sounds super familiar. Um, <laughs> right. it, this is just right out of the playbook, right? What do we do? Well, we have the executive branch has power over who the who the judges are. And so you use that to try to mm. influence interpretive methodologies. Um, it, it was sort of quintessentially American, but actually quite at odds with the way the rest of the world approaches uh, approaches that process. Um, so is, and is the that, first is step is American, a, is, too, in the sense that you yeah. think, well, someone is saying that they're imposing a, a bunch of extra stuff. And, and I'm sure that they would say of themselves, look, we're just elaborating judicially on the concepts that are here. It's not, it's not that we're adding things. We're simply, in the context of specific disputes, adumbrating common sense responses based on the framework that we have in front of us, right? <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't say they were adding, or would they? Well, no, no. I mean, how much of this is like a common law, civil law like mentality, a, a lot of it has to do with um, sort of how much you, uh, what sort of what role you accord for purpose in uh, in interpreting mm-hmm. legal texts, right? Mm-hmm. So a very American dispute, right? Right, right exactly. This is text versus purpose, and exactly, yeah. you know, in, in the you know text ever is thus? clearly ascendant in the in the American um, tradition, Meh. and uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll see. L- lately, um, yeah. right? The arc of history is long, and it bends, <laughs> yes. and it bends toward purposivism. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay, but it's not bending that way at the moment. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff is bending the wrong way right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and of course, the, you know, the, the rest of the world and, and, you know, the Europeans in particular, the European court system has, has long sort of interpreted um, powers expansively. And, and you've had the same thing go on at the WTO where they've, they've sort of looked at the purpose of these agreements and interpreted the text in light of those purposes. And, I, you know, I think with reference to the, that interpretive methodology, those opinions, you know, may very well be be defensible, but they, they look, you know, some of them look quite, I think, indefensible if you are uh, more of a textualist. Well, how often is the WTO amended? I mean, the, like the GATT amended, or how, how many, how often are there new, do they call them protocols or individual treaties? I know, so I know the mm-hmm. WTO is governed by the GATT and a number of other treaties, but I don't know what they all are and how often they're yeah, so the yeah. way that the you know the GATT was created in 1947, and the way it, um, negotiations went was they had what are called negotiating rounds, where they would conclude um, new agreements. And sometimes those new agreements were just standalone agreements that interpreted the GATT or uh, mm-hmm. supplemented. It's it. a general agreement on trade and tariffs, or tariffs, tariffs and trade. And trade. Okay, yeah, and I knew trade. I, I knew my first guess would be wrong, so I said yeah. both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then so, so the, uh, the last round under the uh, old GATT was the Uruguay round, which ends with the creation of the WTO. In, uh, in the, the Uruguay round closed in 94 and the WTO came into – Isn't the WTO like an, the escape from GATT? I mean isn't, wasn't it created as a way to kind of sidestep a bunch of problems with the old GATT? Well, it was it, it did a number of things. So one of the things it did was to actually bolster the uh, dispute resolution process. So mm. under the old GATT system, um, dispute resolution uh, was not. First of all, there was no appellate mechanism, um, and there also was no um, automatically enforceable rulings by the panels. So um, actually, each so, so they were arbitral. They essentially were arbitral. Well, it's not just that they were arbitral hearings. It's that um, in order for the arbitration uh, ruling to have any uh, force, right. um, the actual parties to the GATT had to agree uh, unanimously to uh, adopt the ruling. Oh, so it didn't license a uh, certain modes of self-help. It said, you know, there's right. a ruling and now you have an obligation to implement a remedy consistent with the ruling. Whereas now but- if you get a favorable ruling, you just get to trigger – well, I was just asking. I don't know if what I said was true. Yeah. So, so what you said is it's that um, there's no legal for the the panel itself under the GATT system didn't issue uh, legally binding rulings. It issued recommendations, 
which um, the parties to the GATT had to adopt um, mm-hmm. by consensus. Well, so they didn't. They had to adopt something in response to the panel decision, which was a consensus. Or were by they, consensus, the panel ruling had no legal force yeah. unless it was adopted by consensus. And they had no obligation to do anything in particular with the panel opinion, other than to negotiate in light of it. Is that right? Um, I think they probably didn't even have the obligation necessarily to negotiate in light of it unless it was adopted. So this seems like a weak regime to me. It was a weak regime. So, <laughs> so, so, you uh, might um, even say it is the paradigm of a weak regime. <laughs> right. So if you, if you have a consensus rule, um, obviously cons- the party that lost the dispute gonna be might very well object no. to, uh, right. to consensus. Now, right. you, in some cases, actually, they would reach some sort of negotiated resolution where it would be right. possible to adopt. It would be interesting if criminal law worked that way. There was a trial and, right. and then the defendant, yeah. do you want to go to jail? I'd rather not go to jail right. and yeah. you know we'll see what happens from I, there. I think we'll be right. hearing arguments about that sort of criminal law system in the in the in the very near future. Uh, um, but but <laughs> uh, so so yeah. who was behind uh, who were the the prime movers behind moving to the WTO regime where you get something that's a, a legally binding ruling sure. it can prompt responses by the person who won the ruling and who isn't getting satisfaction from the person who lost the ruling. I just say, I have no idea how much we're retreading your appearance in, I think it was episode three doesn't or something matter. like that. doesn't matter. Just run free. That's just go- run exactly. free. I agree. I agree totally. I yeah. just want to say that, like, yeah. you know, this is, we're creating a whole oeuvre of, like, interleaving conversations. Yeah. Think, well, this, this is all certainly uh, newly relevant since we last Absolutely, had a conversation yeah. about this. So, um, so in the 1980s, the Reagan administration used um, a statutory authority um, called Section 301 of the uh, 1974 Trade Act to uh, essentially – U.S. Uni- Act. U.S. Yeah. is yeah. U.S. trade statute that allows um, the administration to unilaterally determine whether or not another country is either breaching trade obligations or is otherwise behaving in a way that uh, is, discriminates against U.S. Um, US commerce. And they did this because they were really unhappy that the GATT system, um, dispute system, was so slow and that it could be that it could be um, logged up. So the creation of the WTO, a lot of what it did was it was a bargain between the United States and the European Union – um, that said – the U.S. said we will quit using this Section 301 procedure to go out and um, uh, threaten or impose uh, trade sanctions on everybody um, if we agree, Joe, as you said a second ago, that the WTO dispute process will be automatic. So instead of this process where you have to have consensus to proceed with anything, um, instead you have to have um, consensus not to proceed, right? And so the effect of that is practically speaking, everything becomes automatic and you get automatically legally enforceable rulings. If somebody doesn't comply, you get automatic retaliation. So the answer is that the United States pushed for the creation of this strong um, system and it did so and the Europeans agreed to it because the U.S. was using this this unilateral um, mechanism. So, now, it t- so it sounds yeah. like the U.S. must have thought at that point in time, or at least some people in the in the government at the time, must have thought, "Look, on balance, we're going to win more of these than we're going to lose. Uh, yeah. Therefore, we're better off if it has a much stronger enforcement mechanism." Right? If they imagined that they would lose far more often than they would win, this would be the dumbest thing in the world to push for. Right? That's right. Um, so it sounds like it hasn't turned out that way, <laughs> that the uh, that if we're now thinking, oh, gosh, this is bad for us, it must be because we're losing more than we thought we were going to. Uh, no, we win most of the cases we file. Oh, so what's the problem? Uh, the, the, so, uh, so um, you know, like any legal system, there are selection effects. So it's dangerous to sort of infer what happens mm. um, just from the rates uh, of winning at what is effectively the Supreme Court. So <clears throat> part of what's happened is that we've lost a couple of these cases 
um, that have to do with um, something called trade remedies, which is this ability to impose tariffs uh, on goods that are not produced fairly, essentially. Um, and uh, the United States and, and the- But you mean not produced fairly, mean with- uh with overly elaborate state subsidies or with poor working conditions or like things which, you know, where there's not an equality in terms of like cost of inputs and stuff? Yes. So th there's a variety of different kinds of unfair uh, unfair practices. But uh, the, the main concern has been um, significant subsidies, um, especially in China. Yeah. Um, I, I figure we're going to get to China. There's news today about that. But we'll maybe we're getting right. there now. Because it's a non-tariff trade effect, this subsidy that right. distorts. Yeah. Right. The subsidy allows, um, you know, if we're talking about China, right, the subsidies allow Chinese products to be sold for much less than the unsubsidized American or European product. And so the Americans and Europeans um, want some sort of mechanism to allow them to essentially equalize the price, um, right. at least within their home market. Um, and so uh, the United States was unhappy that it was losing these, uh, losing these cases. And so it started to block the appointment of um, or the reappointment of these WTO judges. Um, and so the appellate body now, the Supreme Court of Trade, is uh, um, dropped below the number. There's seven members normally. It takes three to hear a case. Um, they are, uh, if I remember correctly, they're down to three now. And they will be, by the end of next year, down to one. Um, so they are already actually below a quorum because of conflicts rules. You know, the, the American uh. judge shouldn't hear a case against the Americans. Um, they are actually already below the quorum to hear appeals on certain cases. And then by next year, they won't be able to hear any cases uh, at all. That seems like a problem. Uh, it seems like a problem for the, for the dispute system. And of course, do you want a refill? I would. All right. And yeah. if the dispute system is the, is one of the principal ways in which the WTO was the next gen, uh, from Gap, then why have it? Right. If 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 the dispute mechanism is the thing that made it different, and the dispute mechanism is unraveling, then what is the point of having the WTO? What, what? is the point of having the WTO? I mean, in a, in a world where its dispute mechanism is hobbled because one country or another, and if it isn't us, perhaps it would be somebody else. But right now, it's us. If one country or another is blocking the appointment. Uh, such that the appellate body never never achieves a quorum again. Well, so this goes back to Christian's point about you know how often is the WTO amended, right? Because what the GATT and the WTO were supposed to be about, they weren't just supposed to be a court system. They were also supposed to be a negotiating forum. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it in terms of uh, kind of separation of powers, there was supposed to be a, a legislature, a legislative function, um, and a judicial function. Um, and Again, this may sound familiar uh, to uh, to our American <laughs> listeners. What happens is when the lawmaking function stops working, there starts to be a lot more stress on the uh, judicial system. Sure. Um, and so you've, you've, we've observed the same thing. So there hasn't been um, a successful round of negotiations at the WTO since its creation, um, since 1995. So, the, so it puts a lot of pressure on interpretation to solve new problems. Of the exactly. existing baseline. Yeah. The, yeah interpret exactly. that baseline again and again to get the things you're trying to get. Yeah. Exactly. Um, wow. Exactly. So, you know, the, um, it's certainly the case that uh, the Europeans think there is a, the possibility of an agreement that will resolve this impasse. Mm. Um, I, I think the Europeans think that uh, in general what that agreement looks like is it involves um, rules on subsidies that will um, be tougher on – in particular on China uh, in exchange for a functioning, um, a functioning dispute system. 
Um, now, that's easy to say at that general level and very difficult to actually flesh out at the, at the level of specificity. And of course, the Trump administration has done a variety of things that have triggered cases against it that it is worried about losing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, quite apart from the issue with China, it's unclear that this particular administration in the U.S. Uh, would be willing to, to allow the disputes process to, to continue functioning. Well, so what advantage is – how would China be advantaged by a better functioning dispute settlement body? Because they're the ones who are going to have to give up the subsidy component, I think, mm-hmm. to probably the and single the greatest degree. the subsidy issue in China is hard because their economy is so different, right? There are, there are true state-owned enterprises. Right. And there are these weird amalgams of private corporations, and which are, you know, and let's, you know, a bunch of market economies have subsidies for various industries and have had them and have had sure. to give some of them up. But in China, there's, it's like very, it seems to me very difficult to disentangle. And then there's also the problem of keep of, of of um, domestic rules keeping out foreign ownership of certain kinds of industries and um, uh, or foreign control of certain kinds of so there are all kinds of problems like with the Chinese economy in terms of like uh, um, in, in terms of regulating it on the same model that we regulate like the trade between Europeans and Americans. Am I basically right about that? There are all kinds of like structural problems to deal with or yeah no i think that's right and i i I think just to to say what you said in a different way i think that there's at least two different kinds of problems um one kind of problem has to do with just the form of their economy Mm -hmm. um the the gat wto rules were basically designed with more or less something like a western style um uh, capitalist economy in mind and that mixed to a degree but not to a large degree exactly and and when china joined the wto in 2001 there was this um uh, what has turned out to be, I think, a rather naive projection that China was going to continue to evolve in that direction. Extrapolation from the existing right. trend line. Right. Yeah. And that's just clearly proven to be wrong. Um, and so we're left with this question about what do we do with it? Because we have rules. Part of the reason um, that China would be actually relatively happy with a um, functioning dispute system um, is that they actually benefit um, because the rules don't fit very well on top of their system. So there's a number of these kinds of subsidies that are um, they're either as a legal matter difficult to show under WTO rules mm. or just as an evidentiary matter it's difficult to prove. Um, and the so com- they might really gain if they can get yeah. if they can convince people that they've been accommodating enough right. on subsidy questions. Right. Uh, they 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 could be net better off in a world where the dispute mechanism is functioning better. That's right. That's right. They have to. Um, you know, part of that trade, I think, lo- looks like them giving something up on subsidies. But the question is, how much do they give up? And if they if they don't give up too much from their point of view, they'll get back. They yeah, what they get back is legal certainty with respect to uh, market access. Um, and, and so, Christian, that's the other uh, the other half of what you were saying. And and I, I'm having sort of a dim recollection that I, at some point I said this on this podcast. <laughs> but um, I, I think that uh, might have said all of it. But <laughs> yeah. So so you know, pre- uh, the president has often uh, claimed that our trade with uh, China is not reciprocal uh, in the sense that China doesn't give us the kind of market access we give it. Um, and there actually is a little bit of a there's, – there's a kind of truth to that yeah. claim because the way the system works is that you know if the Europeans and the Americans agree to reduce um, trade barriers for each other, they then have to reduce trade barriers for everybody else. And so the US and the Europeans have been doing this since the end of the, of the Second World War. China only comes into the system in, in 2001. Um, and so they, they haven't dropped their trade barriers um, in the way that um, the U.S. and, and uh, Europeans have. And 
they also have a whole set of policies that are associated with their model of uh, kind of state-led um, state-led capitalism because they have an explicit program of developing right. um, productive industries and they you know and, and now with this 2025 program an explicit program of developing critical industries what they conceive of you know the, basically um, like economic independence whether it, in cars in chips and all kinds of like right. and and so they want that that you know they want they want that project to be you know they want to replace silicon valley and they want to be able to right. rely on their own stuff so, and so, so we, in the in the balance between like taking care of your own producers and your own consumers they are fa- they have a program of favoring their producers thinking that you know consumer um benefits will kind of come along for the ride whereas you know you raise uh you raise tariffs and um you're kind of hurting your consumers at the expense of your producers right and, and so that's been well, depending on what your producers can produce. Well, right? they, if your they, producers are, in fact, that's the way to encourage your producers to produce things more of your consumers want. You say, well, look, you got to buy it from them because you can't buy it from anyone else. Yeah, and and we see that reflected in the new NAFTA renegotiations and to try to encourage, you know, um, production in the NAFTA of cars in the North American region. So if you could and, get in the time machine and go back to the negotiations leading up to China's accession, what would you? What would a person who sees all the facts on the ground today tell the people who are who are conditioning China's accession then? Right? What did we not ask for that that maybe we should have asked for, for? Sort of from our point of view. Of course, we know they would resist it from theirs, but I'm just curious to know what how we would frame. Can it. Can I add to that? Like, so I I think right now, and I may be wrong. So they have like a 15% tariff or something like that on cars coming into China. And we have like a two and a half percent tariff on car. I don't know what Trump has done lately. So maybe we, we jacked this up. Um, and so part of what you can see there is that, you know, at least I, this is what I have going in my head. And I am not an expert on this by any stretch that, that there is some kind of accession from the world to China of its need to develop industry, which involves like, a, you know, subsidy, uh, ter- other things like encourage China to develop this productive capacity, and that is to the global benefit, right? That China is a productive economy, and so you might think when they, when you're kind of welcome, welcoming them to the global market economy, that you want to have some provisions in there that allow them to spend domestically to build up this productive capacity, which you think will redound to the benefit of all. Um, and so maybe, so when I think about Joe's question, I'm wondering like how if we were to go back in time and not know about like anything that's happened since their accession. Like, I don't. I don't want to go it, back in time not knowing. I want to go back in time knowing. Oh. Time travel is only fun if you know n- new stuff. Yeah, but if we were wiser, if we, I don't know. I mean, would we? Is that the kind of concern that people had at the time, or would have? And how do you? Yeah. Uh, so, so because uh, you described it as naivete, right? Yeah. So, so let's take those uh, take those questions separately. So, uh, you know, I think that there's a school of thought that says uh, if we could go back in time, and some people say this expressly, what we would do is not let China into the WTO. <laughs> Okay. Um, that, that 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 was a mistake because um, at at a minimum, you know, if we'd waited a few years, we we would have seen right. If we, if we have the benefit of hindsight, we would have seen that they were not evolving in a way that was consistent with the rules, and we would have known that integrating them into the world economy um, was going to require a much tougher negotiation um, with rules that were much more specifically about. So their trajectory China. toward a mixed economy approach, more like Europe's, than then that that trajectory that they seem to be on, we would know that had not turned out to be the case. So we would know that accommodating them within the system that right. does well with mixed economies that that span the the from you know US to France as opposed to US to China, which is a much bigger territory to cover. So what right? we would have had rules about state state owned enterprises and rules about um allowing foreign ownership of 
Right. right. And, so, that- so, and so that's the other thing, right, is that if you're going to allow them in, you then um, would think about having a, a number of sets of rules, right? And so uh, some of these rules would um, be about state-owned enterprises, um, which the U.S. negotiates in um, some of its FTAs now. Um, you might or might not have rules about currency manipulation, um, that would go in uh, into that agreement. Um, you would uh, certainly have rules that clarified um, whether what counts as a subsidy when it comes from a company that is either a state-owned enterprise or some sort of a government-affiliated uh, entity. You'd have clearer rules about that. Um, and then the other thing that the parties agreed was that basically when the, when the U.S. imposes or, the, or anybody imposes these kinds of trade remedies, these sort of uh, tariff surcharges on products that are produced – um, unfairly, usually, usually because they're produced with subsidies um, from China. Um, in 2001, um, there was an agreement that we could continue to uh, apply those things um, and treat China as what's called a non-market economy for purposes of calculating what those would be, which just makes it easier to impose these kinds of charges. You can you can impose them more easily, and you can impose higher rates. Um, but we agreed that we could do that only until 2016. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that period is now over. Uh, the U.S. and the mm. EU haven't changed uh, substantially how they uh, calculate these rates. And so China has filed cases against both the U.S. and the EU at the WTO. Um, and I think you know if you were going back in time, you would um, lengthen that period substantially or you would make the period contingent on China actually mm. uh, actually evolving. Um uh, so I, I think those are the kinds of things you'd, um, you know, you'd be looking for if you went. I mean, those are very dramatic. They're yeah, they're things, very dramatic. and so it's sort of hard to envision how you take the road we're on, right, and start to bend it toward that other road. Like well, you just wind up blowing the whole thing up, right? Well, so, you know, do you blow the – there's an argument to be made, right? If you think back to what the Reagan administration did, what the Reagan administration did was it took a lot of unilateral action that ultimately led to a multilateral solution. Um, and so I think that that is uh, – the United States trade representative is a guy named Bob Lighthizer and I think that is Ambassador Lighthizer's uh, strategy yeah. um, is, to, is to create enough discomfort that – People are willing to are willing to make concessions now. Uh, um, what I like to call NAFTA 2018, or mm-hmm. or sometimes people call it NAFTA 2.0 or NAFTA 0.5, or the USMCA. Right, right. I, I just have new never NAFTA. Call, What's wrong with new NAFTA? I have never called it the USMCA, uh, but the um, <laughs> which is which, as I understand it, is basically old NAFTA plus a little TPP thrown in as seasoning. So, so that was going to be my point, which is that it's not clear that this administration is actually using the leverage it creates to a- extract any kind of meaningful concessions. Um, I think, um, you know, there there are a number of people, uh, and I probably put myself in this camp, who think you know tough negotiating is actually part of what it means to be a, to be a government. Um, but you have to do it in service of a strategy that is right. designed to um, get outcomes that are you know feasible, which means they're going to be acceptable to to other parties, and ultimately we're down to the benefit of, of the United States. And it is unclear that uh, um, USMCA uh, <laughs> is evidence that the Trump administration can note execute that Tr- on that. Note that uh, I almost called you Trump. I don't know. Tim. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Tim used air quotes because I'm thinking about Trump. Uh, but yeah. uh, so, so tell me about this naive thought that I have. Mm. Um, as, uh, as the arc of history continues on, Mm-hmm. And um, technological development increases in the bio field, other fields. Um, we have to achieve kind of a radical interdependence across the globe or we will all die. Okay. Now, if you think that's the case, um, and I, I do for reasons, um, <laughs> then um, 
you still might think that some that the complaints that the Trump administration has had about China are well grounded, and I do think they are well grounded, right? And so, as you say, um, tough negotiations, even if it is about like withdrawing from certain agreements or uh, insisting on things, those can be excellent strategies for achieving ultimately radical interdependence. But there's another thing you might be trying to achieve with this, and this uh, I think there's a disconnect, maybe even within the Trump administration, because who knows what Trump is thinking. I think he has in mind a bunch of like. Balkanized nations each competing in their own self-interest for all time and somehow balancing, right? This is the America first. I don't know what his true commitments are. I don't even know if he has any true commitments. I don't know if people in the administration have a commitment to achieving radical interdependence, but one which is like fair and favorable or not. But uh, you've got your hand raised. Well, you've used the word radical now three times. Okay, yeah. And so I would like you to uh, just say a little bit more about what you mean by radical interdependence. I've said said this a bunch of times on the show before, like in in the same way that like it is totally unthinkable that North Dakota and South Dakota will get into a trade war and start firing missiles at each other, right? They are so interdependent in so many ways that it is, you know, the the chances that North Dakota goes to war with South Dakota are very, let's just say very, very low, right? (laughs) Um, Agreed. So, and, and and so my the premise here is that achieving that level of interdependence will only increase in importance as the kinds of threats that we could face from fights increase. And I think that, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, biological developments, nuclear developments, uh, you, you know, um, uh, cyber development. I, I just use the word cyber. So we have to be moving in your you're postulating that the that our survival uh, is contingent on the world moving toward a time when it is inconceivable that there be a war between Mexico and right. the United States is that there be between Oklahoma and Exactly. Like Texas. That, that the chances of significantly collective No, I say conf- this while we're launching significant you know, tear gas grenades yeah. over the Mexican border. Where the chances of significantly collective conflict is basically zero. You know, there'll always be individual conflict, but like that that nation state level or even state, you know, um, United States state level conflict that now that's my like my bias. I, I don't know. That's not provable. You know, maybe you know through some kind of, like I was saying earlier, some kind of like neo-Westphalian system. Maybe that works. Maybe there's some kind of like you know um, uh, equilibrium that can be achieved. I doubt it. My my thought is that we need to make this unthinkable. And and so you know the Lighthizer strategy. I could see that those tactics being put in service of that project. I'm just not convinced that's their project, and it seems to me a dangerous game. But, like, what do you think? Am I crazy, Tim? Yeah, no, I mean, I think part of what you're— On that ground. Both both this comment and your your last comment hint at sort of what are we trying to do with a with a trade regime? Yeah. What's the point of a trade right. regime? Yep. Um, and so what you just said is, that well, the point of a trade regime is not about trade at all. It's about um, preserving peace. Um, uh, earlier, you suggested, well, a trade regime is going to benefit um, producers or consumers, and we could disaggregate those groups into you for know, any particular instantiation of regime. Of yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, how do we how do we think about favoring um, uh, different groups within the economy? Right. right. So that, that's not a war and peace question. That's a, a question about economic policy. But that's like, like just like with domestic law. Like we just have, like we have, we have laws for all kinds of reasons. One is to like right. benefit people to preserve right. like equilibrium peace, but also to increase the size of the pie. But yeah. but you know, ultimately, with this ultimate constraint that we don't want to have a civil war, right? So, yeah. So here's so here's the here's the problem uh, as I see it, which is that. Um, you know, throughout most of the Cold War, we explicitly thought of uh, the free trade regime in the terms you described it, right? It was it was a foreign policy tool. It was about preserving um, democracy and spreading democracy because we thought that was linked to certain forms of uh, certain forms of capitalism. Um, obviously, the economic, domestic economic politics played a role. 
Um, but uh, basically, the, the exact kind of costs and benefits um, could be overwhelmed by the foreign policy considerations. When the Cold War ends, though, uh, it becomes more difficult to think about exactly what the foreign policy justification for this is. At the same time that you really see the ascendance of a what is kind of a free market uh, ideology, um, and so, uh, although what you say about domestic laws is exactly right, so in domestic economic policy, we just we're comfortable talking about um, who wins from certain kind of policies, right? Who wins from the Trump tax cuts? Right. We talk about that stuff all the time. In trade policy, though, uh, a lot of the discourse in this country focuses on, you know, what is uh, in the interest of overall uh, economic efficiency? What is going to boost the overall welfare? of the nation without really getting into this question about who is benefiting um, from Internally. that. Internally. Although, although Trump has a lot of language about us winning, right? The, the win-lose right. has been injected into this conversation in a way it hadn't in the past necessarily. As opposed to win-win. Yeah. Like that there be a loser be, seems to be important. But, but in a way that it hadn't zero been. sum has been introduced. Yeah. So, so, here, so here though, I think whether or not it's zero sum, here I think Trump is actually on to something because what Trump is doing and to be fair, this is also what Bernie Sanders was talking about and, and Elizabeth Warren talks about this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea is that we have to be sensitive to who actually is losing within our domestic system from trade liberalization. And, and we know that there are right. um, industries and, and, that, that and hasn't workers. been absent. I mean, you know, with the original NAFTA, there was talk about like um, – sure. You know, subsidies for or, or you know, labor retraining side and, and environmental but, side agreements. But the, but and, the yeah. criticism has been that that kind of neoliberal – especially right. from the Democrats, it was just lip service and they never actually delivered on this. You know, you'd have to go back in time and say, well, the House was taken over by Republicans in 94. Like there's a whole history about like why, right. you know, how this trade agreement evolved, right? Uh, no, I think that's right. And um, But I think that the the claim that – exactly the claim that you made that al- although it comes up that it never really sort of receives its due in the political process is uh, something that, I, you know, I think really resonated with a lot of voters uh, in the 2016 cycle. Again, in, on both sides of the mm-hmm. aisle. It wasn't right. a – it wasn't a Trump-specific phenomenon. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we may very – given that the, the uh, new NAFTA doesn't really do very much um, beyond the old NAFTA with a little bit of TPP, you know, I, I think we're, we're in that same sort of world where um, we've, we've spent a lot of energy on this idea that we um, need to decide what it is we're doing with trade policy. And part of that needs to be about thinking about these kind of distributional considerations. And then we haven't done it. Um, we, we've sort of tweaked a little bit here and there. Um, the tweak that President Trump has, has used is is different. It's aimed at a different constituency than the tweak that President Clinton did to get the first uh, NAFTA through. But it is just a tweak. Um, it's not a, yeah. a substantive rethinking of how we engage with these kinds of issues. And so ultimately probably doesn't solve the long-term, um, the long-term question of – you know, what are we trying to do with the trade policy and, and you know, how are we pursuing um, those ends once we decide what they are? Because people's enthusiasm for growing a pie yeah. is it seems to turn – I mean common sense would suggest it would turn on what they think is going to happen to the slices of the pie and how big right. the slices are going to be. Right? It's not One crazy think to until think Until you that, look at domestic tax policy that's and right. you, wonder, you wonder if people really do think about that. Well, but the, uh, what I'm thinking of it, it, at least is, is sort yeah. of the, ultim- the ultimatum game psychology experiments where people are, are like, you know, if, if, the, if the candy bar isn't going to get cut in half, you sort of deny everyone the candy bar. So, so your enthusiasm for growing – literally, your enthusiasm for growing the pie or growing the candy bar is all about how it gets divided. So if you can't work the domestic politics about distribution into your conversation about the international politics of trying to lift the system up to be bigger, 
Well, but if the, if are we living through that problem? So you have distributional concerns, you have pie growing concerns and you have existence concerns, right? You know, it seems to me the international (laughs) regime, like, you know, the governance of that asks the basic question, how will we live together? Right. And one of the, one of the answers to that has to be that we will live. Right. And then the other part has to, and then you have all the other concerns you have with any regime. Like how does the regime deliver on, um, uh, on, meeting the the needs and preferences of the people who live under it and how does it distribute the gains from that it it seems to me it's just the basic question again and tim it was interesting you point out that you know that one of the uh purposes maybe originally of the uh, international trade regime was um to as a as a tactic against the Sto- as part of a broader strategy against the soviet union and so it's like a response to an existential threat right now that particular existential threat has diminished um, but the nature of threats to existence, it seemed to me, can are, are no longer like, you know, bipolar, meaning that it's not just, you know, uh, huge, huge nation states uh, that can threaten kind of the fabric of modern society. You know, we're facing more threats from more angles. And if you're worried about that, then then maybe you see the project of interdependence as more than just like uh, creating interdependence among like-minded nations to fight some other big set of like-minded nations but maybe we need that to to uh maybe we need this radical interdependence to to deal with um threats to uh, prosperity but also existence that arise from you know all over the place I, i'm not saying it very well but you know no, what, whether I, it's like you yeah know, so, so i yeah. i think that's right uh, my, my colleague uh, ganesh sitaraman and i are, are uh trying to put out a piece that's thinking about actually how you would do this uh and part of it has to do with the idea that um you know, we do have a whole set of security concerns that are related to um, our economic policy and our international uh, our international trade policy. And we have to think about the relationship not only between the purely sort of economic and distributional questions, but also um, these kinds of existential considerations about, about security and how are these things all related. And we do a really bad job of this in the United mm. States. Um, and so uh, even um, – administrations like the current administration that thinks of economic security in national security terms and some of their actions are expressly justified as national security actions. They're they're steel steel and aluminum yeah. tariffs. Um, but and, and you think that's more than just like legal strategy because that's one way you can actually put on the that's maybe the only way you can put on these tariffs is by justifying them that way, but you think they actually think they are. I mean I think that they uh, – so this is a definitional question about what you mean by national security. I right. think that they think that the long-term economic security of the United States does hinge on um, addressing the uh, China problem and, and rebuilding some manufacturing capacity uh, in the United States. Now, that's an economic security question, how closely that is related to sort of uh, national security in the sense of national defense. You know, I think there's probably disagreement within the mm-hmm. administration over over that question. Um but but you know we have to have a better way to think about uh, and to talk about how we balance these kinds of uh, competing concerns, right? Because a trade policy isn't just about growing the pie, um, and it's not just about peace and security, right? Because peace and security is is related to these kinds of distributional uh, questions, um, and and we we just don't have a very good um, uh, system for how to think through that, right? And mm-hmm. and you got to remember that at the at the electoral level, this is true in the United States. It's also true in Europe, right? We have a federal system, so. I talk to a lot of people about these concerns and then somebody says, well, but most of the time these things don't happen in elections. The 2016 election was an aberration. Well, well, maybe, but you know, we have a federal system where you, you've got a handful of states that, that are going to tip a presidential election one way or the other. And so the question is, um, you know, 
are those states likely to um, perceive this to be a problem, you know, in in the near term, in in subsequent elections? Um, and you know, even if it's not a problem every election, how likely is it to be a driving um, force in uh, in presidential elections? And it seems to me now that we're in a space where you know the the coasts have have moved and have basically prospered. Um, and you've got a set of states that uh, that perceive themselves to to really have been sort of left out of the economic growth of the country. And so this is likely to be, even if it doesn't tip the election every, you know, there's there's a lot of other stuff going on. But yeah. even if it doesn't tip, uh, you know, every presidential election, it's going to be a recurring theme, I think, in elections in a way that it um, maybe hasn't been, you know, uh, as central uh, since, you know, since the end of the Cold War. And, we, and you would describe that theme as a distributional theme? A distributional concern? Theme? I think the electoral concern is a distributional concern. And then I think there's a policy concern that is bipartisan. I think both Democrats and Republicans think we have to figure out how to deal with um, the long-term uh, security threat that could be posed um, by China. That's that's an economic security issue in the sense that um, we worry about competition um, with China. But it's also a more traditional national security threat if what we're worried about is um, them taking access to proprietary technology or being able to manipulate a 5G network. In but, a way but ultimately, that, I mean, you know, there's also just the opportunity cost of not achieving a trade regime built on on mutual trust and interdependence. I mean, imagine like if North Dakota said we can't afford for South Dakota to have the, the aluminum manufacturing, <laughs> you know, it, like so they, we have to have all of our own. Uh, manufacturing uh, of critical industry here in North Dakota, like it would be a disaster for uh, trade in the United States if every state said we've got to have, you know, all of the industry needed to be self-sufficient. I mean, it, it's it's the opposite of what you want in a free trade regime, right? Of course, but of course, but so to take your North Dakota and South Dakota example, we've got two institutions that are fairly strong that would prevent that from happening. One is, of course, Congress could step yeah. in, and the other is through the Dormant Commerce Clause, the courts um, yeah. would would step in, and the courts, of course, could assist Congress as well. Um, we lack those two strong um, institutions at the international level, exactly. and so the question is, how do we get um, to a place where we uh, achieve that outcome um, without those institutions already existing to support that. Um, one way is to try to rebuild those institutions. Um, and another way is to, is to try to think about what kind of steps can the United States, you know, we're sitting here in the United States, but what kind of uh, steps can any country take to, to you know, to further um, that sort of substantive outcome uh, in a world in which those institutions don't already exist. And in which, I mean, I think, I mean, the distributional point is is very important, and you know, I think the the um, whether you take the um, Thomas Piketty critique or or not, um, that there, it just is a fact that wealth inequality is growing pretty much everywhere, and it may take a global solution, at least in a world of global finance, to do something about it. So, so this is a huge problem, but um, um, but there's also like. I, I, so I don't know, maybe political scientists know this better, but it seems to me that you might always be able to sell resentment to people in the market to buy resentment and that uh, a huge part of what happened in 2016. I mean, so 2016, like you forget, like Hillary Clinton had many more votes and and lost in the Electoral College by like a stadium's worth of people spread over three states. And it, it, had that gone differently, we'd have we'd be talking in a very different way about this. So I don't want to like overlearn the lesson of an election. There is a sense in which it was kind of a freak election. Right. I mean, um but um, uh, it's also possible to overstate whether there are whether substantive concerns about unfair trade really grounded the votes of people who you know tipped that election in a way that was either unusual or or not. Like you know, what, if people um, 
even people who are pretty uh, fairly well off are capable of feeling a kind of resentment. Like I worked really hard for this and I should have even more. And so I, I'm, I don't know. Are you at all reluctant to attribute like, so, like truly substantively grounded? Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I, you know, my theory of the average American voter is that the average American voter does not understand uh, any policy issue at any great level of uh, detail, unless it happens to be something that they are professionally uh, engaged with. Right. So, but you know, I don't, inclu- that certainly includes me. I think, and right? and, me, and yeah. me as well. Right. Yeah. There, there's yeah, that sounds of, more like a theory of the human voter than the average voter. Right. So, so, so when you say, well, you know, was the voter sitting around, you know, really upset about trade prior to the election? I think probably not. Uh, the question though, is whether or not they're going to be susceptible to an appeal that's well, along that the lines skepticism. of what you, yeah, along the lines of what you suggest. And so I think as long as they are susceptible to the appeal of that kind of claim, um, then, you know, then this trade issue is going to be with us. It's going to be with us, as you say, right, with a bunch of other issues that may mean that, you know, it ends up not, not affecting the yes, outcome but the, in any particular. My, my criticism was like, what, is, what makes someone susceptible to the appeal? And I was uh, just being a little skeptical. And again, without any information, I'm just kind of spouting off here, but I'm maybe a little bit skeptical like Santi that, um, that what makes someone susceptible to that appeal has much to do with the actual fairness of trade. And the actual distributional fairness um, that, that maybe human psychology makes one susceptible to an appeal to resentment kind of regardless of, you know, could, could the trade regime be made better for that person? Maybe so. But like, you know, that so, yeah, the criticism is basically like, aren't people always going to be susceptible to this appeal regardless of what we do on trade? And maybe maybe not. I don't know. So I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think the, the sort of story we're constantly learning about our politics is that uh, resentment and uh, oppositional politics, um, tribal politics, if you want to use that term, do resonate and mobilize um, people. You can mobilize a, a number of people. Um, on both sides of the aisle. There are a number of people that aren't mobilized, but you can get a lot of work done through, um, you know, pointing the finger at somebody else and saying, you know, this is this is the source of uh, of your problem. It's unfair trade policies that benefit China or Mexico or it's, it's illegal immigration. Um, uh, having said that, though, I think that there is a, an important uh, point, which is that you know, if you're living in some of these states that have seen the composition of your economy change so much because yeah. you've lost all these manufacturing jobs, you actually are watching your way of life change. And even if it doesn't affect you personally because you didn't, you weren't working in one of those factories, you're watching it affect your community. Um, and you know that is, as long as that kind of economic change is going on. I think voters are going to be susceptible to claims that that say, "Look, there's a policy that is causing this, uh, and we could do better on that uh, on that policy." There's a uh, guy named Nicholas Lamp has a really interesting paper um, that uh, that he just put up that talks about um, the uh, the narrative that President Trump puts forward as um, the idea that we have like a property entitlement to our jobs. Mm. Um, and uh, it's like a Bernie Sanders kind of thing. It right? is, it yeah. is kind of yeah. He, he's he's sort of trying to excavate exactly what the competing narratives are in trade. But but I think this is a super interesting idea, right? Because if you think about um, the the claim that somebody is taking from me or from my community something that we have an entitlement to, uh, right. in the same way that you know we would have an entitlement uh, to not have somebody come in and just take our homes um, from us, our private property, our public parks. Uh, then it starts to become, I think, more understandable um, why it is that voters are going to respond to this. This is like more like claim. the Michael Moore perspective, like with Roger and me in the early like plant closings and moving moving to Mexico. And there were even some legal cases 
where uh, people were adjudicating the kind of the right of the factory to move out of town, given that they received state subsidies. These are kind of state action type cases. And to me, it it actually sounds very much like sort of (laughs) very old Europe labor ideas, Mm. like people throwing their wooden shoes into the machines, basically. I mean, (laughs) like a wave of industrialization that comes through and just eliminates all sorts of livelihoods, right? Right. Um, the, the, uh, the anti-disruption sentiment can be manifested in lots of ways, a property story, other stories, but the, the, the human, uh, wreckage, uh, post disrupting transformation of some technology or some other uh, social arrangement, right? I mean, it's been going on for a long time and people, <laughs> people have been complaining about having their lives mangled. For a long time. Well, there, there are two kinds of utopias, I think, that are kind of – it's interesting. I don't know if he talks about this in that paper. But like one of them is where there is like this entitlement to a job and like the, the factory which has provided livelihood to a town exists forever and there's complete security that you can go to work for them. You put in hard work and you get uh, – you have a nice life. And um, the other utopia is one where it doesn't matter if that factory goes away because mobility is super cheap. Healthcare is universal. And and so you can kind of just slot in anywhere in the economy. And if you fall upon hard times, you're taken care of. And so like that's a different, totally different kind of utopia. Like one is more like that latter one that I mentioned is kind of more techno libertarian. And I am not at all a libertarian. But on the other hand, like that seems to me a good future, right? Where uh, and it's a way of providing subsidies that kind of you know, it doesn't make, sound libertarian to me to say there's a strong social safety net that allows for the sort of riptides of capitalism to exist without destroying everyone. Well, uh, it, it, it's it's a way, I think, of, of realistic, realistically realizing worker and consumer sovereignty in a way that actually could work in the long term, right? That, that you have yeah, to provide... Yeah, I just, I mean, I just bristle at yeah. the word libertarian. That is not a libertarian well, no, but, because but, uh, the amount of tax revenue that you would need to raise to create the social safety net you are describing yeah, uh, is something well, they would I find think, utterly intolerable. But, but you, well, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I would just say that I, I, I think, uh, Joe, I think you're both right, actually, which is that the... the what what that, a politic. You are, that you are amazing, second, yeah. you, should, you should be involved in negotiations. You're the best guest. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I should work at the State Department. Yeah, um, so the... the, the Christian, what you're describing is often the way that um, people envision the economy working. Right? Yeah. It's it's justified and trade is justified in these terms, which is that people are going to slide into new jobs that are created by trade. Um, the 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 problem is that the sort of uh, transactions costs of are of massive mobility are massive, and so yeah. you need that you need that the sort of welfare state to to deal with that to give people that safety net. And in the United States, we haven't had a safety net that allows people to that really sort of cushions the the people that are not able to overcome those. Right. Even those the word more, safety net is kind of this like neoliberal idea that it's it just is. there as a backup. Yeah. Right. Now, who wants to sleep in a safety yeah. net? Right. Right. And, that's right. <laughs> So there's a, there's this there's this but these sort of swashbuckling you know trade titans are the first ones to try to pull up the tax ladder to make sure that right. they're not asked to pay the bill right. to help actually protect people against right. these vicissitudes. Right. So here's another way to think about what's going on, which is that th- there's a literature that finds that um, the more uh, exposed your country is to international trade, the more likely you are to have a substantial safety net. Uh, and so it turns out that smaller, particularly smaller European countries that were exposed to uh, trade in the 20th century, right, they developed uh, social safety nets uh, faster, right? And we could think here maybe of like Scandinavian um, countries. Um, and, and that's to deal with severe dislocations resulting from 
like are, are the industries in which we can compete well are going to do great, but a bunch of other industries are going to go by the wayside. And right. Is and that so, the idea? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if we're going to have this, if we're going to expose our economy to uh, to the international trading system, which we think is good for a variety of reasons, we need to have a social safety net that's going to allow people um, that cushion as they try to transition into the, into the new economy. So the problem in the United States, right, that, that system would predict that the United States actually would have a relatively smaller social safety net because the U.S. is a huge internal market. Mm-hmm. So the, the percentage of the U.S. economy that is exposed to international trade has historically been much lower than other um, developed countries, particularly if you're thinking about European countries individually rather than the EU in aggregate. Um, and so, you know, part of what, the way we might understand what's happening now is that, you know, the marginal importance of that sector of the U.S. economy that is exposed to international trade, that it's becoming politically more important because they are concentrated in a in a particular uh, number of states. Um, is, is that still true? I mean, so the service economy is obviously not exposed and in there's a whole American economic story about the importance of the service economy. Sure. The, uh, American economy in goods, and I don't know what portion of the economy this is, like is massively exposed, especially with the rise of Walmart and like retail stores, which are essentially just warehouses, right? And the goods come in from overseas and are sold through these like warehouse style stores. I mean, this is, it seems to me we're massively exposed there, but like, is that a small, well, so, how, how do you? So that, I guess that's what, so, so if you think, if you want to divide it between goods and services, the places that are uh, that, that that are exposed to goods are yeah. exposed to goods are the ones that need the social safety net, um, and are uh, just as a uh, perhaps as a happenstance of the way our politics are organized right now. Um, they also have more political power than perhaps they have had in, in the past, mm-hmm. and those economies, those let's think of them as sort of maybe state economies like California or New York, that benefit enormously from services uh, economies. They don't have much clout in uh, national, um, you know, or in a presidential election because we know who they're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not really influencing uh, outcomes um, in the same way that those states, um, like Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania, that are more exposed, um, do. And so, you know, I, I tend to think that w- that when we talk about these things nationally, to try to we talk about. The, try to understand our national policy with reference to our national aggregate politics, we miss the fact that um, not every uh, part of the economy and not every region um, plays an equally influential role in yeah. determining what kind of policy we have. This is sort of the Brexit thing again, right? It's that exactly you can, the you can Brexit thing. If you, don't, if you don't think about it from sort of an Irish perspective, a Northern Irish perspective, a Scots perspective, or the Welsh perspective, I guess we didn't talk about that, um, you, you would see different things. And, you'll, and, yeah. you'll, and you might mistake uh, the whole uh, by virtue of not having thought through the parts. Right. Well, and it, you know, this is the same thing as uh, you know, Nate, Nate Silver points this out when he's talking about uh, election coverage, that – um, if you want to understand what's going to happen, you have to have state-level polling because th- that's the uh, – at least state-level polling, right? Because that's the smallest unit that actually matters. And so when you're talking about, well, the national poll is X, OK. But, uh, you know, it's unclear – unless you think that the, that the nation uh, average is correlated at the level at which decisions are actually made. But how can trade negotiation happen at all if you're not able to do at least some modularization of – you know, you don't – if you're sitting across the table from the U.S. trade rep, it's not the <laughs> – the U.S. trade rep isn't – doesn't have 50 body parts, each of which corresponds. Yes. I mean, so you have to be able to modularize to some degree, right? No, so that's right. And so th- this is like a huge other problem, I think. Um, and the problem is the copy-paste problem, 
which is that uh, if you've l- looked at a modern trade agreement, they are extraordinarily long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, U.S. Trade Representative's office is not an especially uh, large office. There's a few hundred uh, employees in that office. And so if you said to them, look, uh, rethink the way we do trade agreements um, and in, in go into, uh, for example, the uh, new NAFTA negotiations with the idea that we're going to come up with really what a model agreement that's going to address these um, distributional concerns. It's going to grow the pie. It's going to address economic security concerns. They are just not staffed to do that, right? And then you have to get that through Congress, right? And so in all of these, um, just sort of the institutional environment um, privileges uh, sort of copy copy what is basically a copy-paste system of moving things forward that have already been agreed without evaluating how they intersect with these competing uh, competing constituencies. So it's not just that Bob Lighthizer doesn't can't think with 50 different uh, uh, body parts, right? It's it's actually that um, you know the institution is just not well adapted to mm. thinking comprehensively. But if we, even if we improve the institution, like getting that right depends on an ability to kind of model the evolving economy in light of the agreement, right? And that's hard to predict the future, right? Um, <laughs> it's and, the hardest thing to predict. And, you know, and economics is an inexact science, to put it mildly. I mean, you know, maybe like with weather, the the larger the system that you model, the the closer you can get. But to the extent you're trying to be modular, like what is the what is the impact of this trade agreement on this particular county in Ohio? That could be... <laughs> But there's a way – so that's true, but there's a way to deal with that, right? And so this is back to Joe's point about the social safety net, right? Yeah. You, you can build yeah. in insurance-type schemes that are designed to protect against um, the risks that a system creates um, without sort of giving up the idea that the market has a role to play that, you know, and that we're not going to have a essentially planned economy, right? It's possible to have both free market forces. But that brings right, back this and, tension again between a vision, of, a vision of the international order is one where like – your livelihood doesn't depend on the plants staying open. Like, the, you know, the, the, in other words, you don't, the property entitlement doesn't matter because whether the plant goes or not, you'll have a quality life. And, and the other vision of, which is a strong, I, I hate even saying safety net, but, it, but basically a strong um, human entitlement system, right? Where I'm entitled to education, to healthcare, to other things, and to uh, a certain amount of mobility. So housing policy has to be made in such a way that makes mobility easier, even without many resources. That's one regime. The other regime is strong plant entitlement. In other words, we shape these, uh, when I'm shaping these modular, when I'm thinking modularly about trade agreements, I want to, I want to think, well, is the plant going to stay open in X County, Ohio? Those are just totally different projects, right? I mean, uh, well, the second one to me doesn't sound like a trade project at all. It sounds like an anti-trade project because it, because what it puts first and foremost is the stability of the current instantiation of the sort of the capital and social arrangements, that's what's got to stay put. But this has been the, the whole conversation. Keep, the way to stay put been, is to yeah. not have trade buffeting it at all. Like one right? view of I trade say, is I would just say it's an anti-trade liberalization project. It's still a trade policy. Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. But it, it, it's more like it's more like Trump's rhetoric than the way that we're talking about what Lighthizer is doing. It, it, well, maybe. That, that if you look at things as a zero-sum game, you want to use whatever power you have to negotiate a trade agreement that makes your plants more profitable and creates more of them and prevents more of them, others of them from closing. Like that's the zero sum understanding of what you'd be doing, right? And it feeds into the idea that the, the person living in a, in a particular county in a particular state is, is vulnerable to, uh, to particular industries going away and that your job is to 
cure that vulnerability by ensuring that those industries stay in place, right? That seems, well, I mean, that, that is the, the zero-sum vision that I've attributed to Trump trade rhetoric, if not trade policy. But it seems to me totally unsustainable just on a trade level, much less the kind of the economic interde- interdependent security things that we talked about before. It, it, does that make any sense, Tim? Am I wrong? Like you're looking at me kind of blankly, so I don't know if I'm saying it right. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that there's a view that, you know, you can't protect uh, what we might think of as kind of legacy industries. Um, now, uh, you know, th- there is a uh, sense in which you might say, look, we cannot predict the future and therefore whether an industry is innovative, whether it's going to be necessary in the future, whether or not that's a technology industry or a legacy industry, you know, we, we just can't know. Um, it looks like China has done a pretty good job, actually, at, at projecting and, and managing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, this the kind of claim you're making that, that we can't know, obviously, it's true that we can't know with certainty. Um, but the idea that a government um, cannot protect certain industries, be they legacy industries or sort of infant industries, um, I think you know governments can do that, um, and they can have some success with that. They're also going to fail um, sometimes and be imperfect at that. Um, but uh, just you know, just the fact that um, an administration is trying to uh, help a particular industry, I don't think is an indication that we live in in your second world. You know, mm. your second world is one in which we're sort of isolationist, right. and there's no creativity in the economy at all. Um, and uh, I sometimes worry that it's not helpful to talk about um, sort of pockets of policy that are about helping this or that industry and to extrapolate from that to the idea that we have a closed economy that is uh, – that Yeah, is- that's how I try to distinguish between Trump rhetoric and Trump administration policy, right? The Trump rhetoric is about keeping this particular carrier plant operating in this particular place, right? right? And – and, and the voter the, – because we were talking kind of like politically earlier about like right. what the voters hear and what they hear is he's going to fight to keep my property entitlement to this yes. plant in place, yes. right? And if that were policy, I think it would be disastrous on a number of levels because it erodes the, 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 the felt need for a social commitment to a kind of good life, right, to um, – um, uh, to a collective responsibility to ensure that each of us has a good life, which is a platform on which we can engage in all kinds of personal innovations, whether it's w- moving to another state to work or whatever else, right? And, and not to mention the the invisible opportunity costs uh, that we would have gotten from the gains of trade by having different plants open and different plants close, right? So, but uh, you and, know, the, and the recent GM yeah. announcements suggest that it is not the administration's policy, <laughs> right? Because it, it, they are. Those plants are closing, um, and indeed they're closing in yeah, part well, from encouragement with a tax bill that included incentives for yeah, them. Yeah, but to what do does he so. say? So, and so this is like the the, the administration. So when you were distinguishing between rhetoric like he and says policy, he, he says that he's totally upset about this. That he had a very stern conversation, threatens some kind of action, which would almost certainly be unconstitutional, right? I mean, he doesn't say exactly what it would be, but he he's threatening, right, in, in retaliation for this, uh, something happens. So the rhetoric, again, is I'm upset about this and my whole goal is to stop this from happening to you, Trump voter, right? And But kind of what I'm hearing, what I heard from Tim earlier is that it, even if that's the rhetoric, that's not necessarily the policy like in Lighthizer's office. Uh, I mean, you know, I think the administration has uh, – and this has been, I think, well covered in yeah. the press. But the administration has a multiplicity of different views about <laughs> right. how to approach this. And, you know, they've had a significant amount of internal struggle, um, you know, uh, 
you know, so so it, it's difficult to know exactly what the White House uh, thinks about this specifically. And then, of course, you've got uh, Lighthizer at USTR. You've got um, Secretary Ross at the mm-hmm. Commerce Department, and um, they have their own views about about how these things should should proceed. So, uh, you know, I, I, it certainly seems to be the case that um, although the president uses this rhetoric at a very, I think, plant specific level sometimes that the administration is not um, sort of wholesale pursuing that kind of plant-based uh, strategy, if you will. Uh, on the other hand, though, they all they are also uh, tr- targeting certain aspects of their negotiating strategy at very specific industries. Very specific right? industries, like the auto, auto industry. Auto, yeah. steel, aluminum. Yeah. So um, and, you know, some of those uh, strategies, like the auto provisions in the new NAFTA, are um, are really designed to the extent that they're going to help the industry, and I'm making air quotes again. You know, they're they're designed to help um, the workers, maybe uh, not so much the companies, right? So the the auto companies are not necessarily thrilled about having to rejigger their um, supply chains within North America. Yeah, because they would prefer to buy from. Vietnam or from China or from uh, emerging fact- factories in, in, in yeah or yeah but they uh, uh, but under the new agreement as I saw it like you know it, it gives us it, um, it drops tariffs on cars between the uh, North American countries if they're produced with a certain percentage of of materials from within the trade zones, right? Yeah. So there's there's two provisions, and then there's the the wage thing too, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so both of those things are designed to um, bring. Uh, production capacity back into the into the United States, um, mm-hmm. both by requiring that that more of the content be made within North America, and then creating a disincentive for that place in North America to be Mexico. Mm-hmm. Wow, Joe, yeah, you got to wrap up, right? Yep, I, I want to make sure all the listeners know that this conversation is 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 cut short because Joe has to go. Yes, I am unjustly <laughs> and uh, in the universal sense prematurely. Uh, ending the conversation. And everyone, all the listeners. So, but you two yeah. can keep going because Tim can be the new co-host of Oral Argument and we just transform, you guys could just do it. So I this think, is my last episode, folks. Goodbye. Tim, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, T- Tim is a saint and uh, and I think can can tolerate my nonsense maybe on a once every two years basis on the show. Um, if we have adult beverages, we can be tolerated at a much higher frequency. <laughs> it's a different podcast. <laughs> maybe we should start a different podcast. Um, and we're, I don't know what we would talk about exactly, but you know, the sky's the limit. There's all kinds of stuff we could do. Yeah. And yeah. So like every other listener, I look forward to hearing what you guys come up with. Oh, you're yes. not going to be a part of this one. No, that's like I've said, I'm, 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 this is my last episode. Oh and... my God, Joe. <laughs> Jeez. What are you going to do? Uh, but you know, your first appearance with us, I think it was episode three. I'll put it in the, but that was almost five years ago now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a long time. Our five year anniversary is coming up. Coming right yeah. up. You in guys, days. I mean, literally days. Are you guys selling any any sort of swag? I mean, T-shirts? Uh, we need to do some merch. If Stickers? Pe- if yeah. people want to, you know, the way we're going to do this, right, yeah. is in a very bilateral way. Okay. So people would like to buy, <laughs> basically, I've got a bunch of clothes in my drawers That's right there, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, Were they made in America? Tim, you can, you can attest. Now, a lot of people only hear my voice, mm-hmm. right? But you would say, like, would you say Christian Turner is attached to any particular articles of clothing that he owns or does he look like he basically puts on whatever is on top of I, the pile i would go with the latter option. yeah okay right. um i am not known for my sartorial like mm-hmm. interest you know whatever so that said that what that means is that if a listener would like to buy any clothing which is let's just say vintage uh how do you what's the nice way of saying pre-worn clothing 
Yeah, it's like the older. It has to be really old to be vintage. I think. I think most yeah. of my clothing qualifies. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, make me an offer. Right. So this is the way our store is going to work. Right. We're not going to have oral argument T-shirts and caps and other things, but we will offer to sell anything that we've got that's Listeners, not bolted I, down. I just, I just want to. I think the best thing for me to do is to simply walk gingerly back out of this landmine strewn <laughs> territory. Um, You're not. Just think of it like a big garage sale. Yeah. Well, for example, you omitted to mention in your possibilities of of uh, your sartorial strategy the fact that grabbing things off the pile is, is all well and good, but when the pile is very small, yes, mm-hmm. uh, the two things actually merge. Uh, so, so yeah. If we're going to do merch, huh. let's do fresh merch that's never been worn by anybody to our knowledge. Or huh. or what you could do is you could just make a record of what you wear to each individual episode. And uh. then listeners could request your clothing for <laughs> their See, favorite episodes. Mm, gonna mm. Ba- again, going to back away. <laughs> well, So I've got an, I've, I actually have an Arsenal t-shirt on today. You, you do. do. You do. It happens to be the same shirt I wore yesterday. Okay. It's early in the morning, though. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like my decision to stop participating in any way in oral argument comes, <laughs> comes at a very opportune time. You seem very uncomfortable with this conversation, Joe, and I, I don't I know. Just, yeah. Why? It I, just can't end well. I mean, an Arsenal t-shirt worn to record an episode <laughs> of oral argument that dealt with Brexit. Well, n- now I get it. It's like... That should be a premium I think there that. should... Well, that's... I now understand yeah. Joe's reluctance because I... I, I <laughs> finally! <laughs> finally the moment uh, arrives. No, I, I saw it from the beginning. Thank you, Tim. I, I wasn't trying to claim from the beginning any kind of premium... Based on like it, the artifact quality of these I things, see, right? I or the relic. I, right. There's no reliquary that from which we will sell clothing. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking I've got stuff lying around. Like right. we've got a lamp here. If people want to buy that, make me an offer. I'm just saying in a very bilateral way, whatever I've got, make me an offer. Right. Okay. Right. I, I've got, you know, I'm almost. So you're not suggesting, for example, that 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 it would be worth less if it had been washed before it were sent. No. See that I do not think. Uh, I mean, I and think again, it's worth... I just want to, I want you to look mm-hmm. around at the ground at how many landmines you're standing in the middle of. Oh my gosh. Before I leave. That's what I'm saying. I'm, this is not a, this is not a sale from a reliquary, right? <laughs> We're not, this is not, uh, you know, it's not, oh my God, he wore this. It's like, I'll, you know, even though he wore it, I'll still buy it because, you know, I need a shirt, right? Mm. Uh, just like you would go into a vintage clothing shop. The vi- right? There you go. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah. Except these aren't quite as old as things which you might pay mm. for. But like, it's like a secondhand shop. I mean, it's a very some, sad secondhand shop. I've got a tripod over there that I'd be willing you to sell. You are not allowed to sell this copy of, of Judge John Hodgman's settled law statements. Oh, not, not, not for a Because that was a gift from me to definitely you. So not, you are not allowed to sell that. Definitely not for a low price. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, everything has a price. I seriously yeah. have to go. Everything has a price You've because. You've got pictures of your kids here? Yes, I've got, I, I would sell those. Like, yeah, right. There, there is a price for which I would sell almost anything. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I'm, you, well, you know this, Joe. Like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how to make money. I think the show is good evidence of that. And I, there's, I there's lots of other evidence strewn through my life, like wreckage that I don't actually think about <laughs> yeah. this one. Indeed, indeed. Um, but, like, you know, not to sell something to think of is, 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 is kind of selfish. Because, like, if I sold one of these, like, like the settled law poster for like a high someone price. someone said, like, a million dollars and you didn't take it. That'd be kind it would of be selfish because I could your, use yeah. that money for, for good things. Like I could, I could uh, buy multiple you know, settled law posters. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that one. Other than yeah, that one. Well, right. there you go. Since I, that one goes for a million dollars. I was yeah. thinking various charitable causes, but you know, I think that's, you point out, like we, basically that's a printing press because then we would just put those up. We would sell those again and, you know, eventually the, it would be somewhat deflationary on the price of, of settled <laughs> law. Settled law posters. Yeah. That's true. I, boy, this huh. conversation is going, it's going <laughs> great. So um, I'm hesitant to end, but Joe, you do have to go. Is that right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. 
But it's been great to see you, Tim. Thank you for it was great we'll to see you. join us again in Joe? five years. So yeah, no, 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 celebrate no, 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 our no, no, next two years, or two and a half years, years or whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm no. saying, in addition to however many other intervening episodes he joins us for, certainly, uh, if you're if you're nearly in our fifth anniversary episode, you should be in our nearly tenth anniversary episode. I okay. look for I look forward to it. We can talk about Brexit then. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah, and what a disaster it's been. Yeah. Boy, when we listen back to this one, we'll know. <laughs> mm. Okay, bye. <laughs>